Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. Today, I have a fantastic guest to talk to. He's a producer. He's an actor. He's a writer. He is a man about the world. We have Mr. Martin Harris with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's exciting. I have to say... Your story is a uh, is really interesting to me. If 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 there, are, I know there's going to be a lot of people that are not completely familiar with where you came from to where you've gone. It's such a really interesting transition. You started more in in the realm of being a uh, a sports writer. Is that correct? It's actually almost correct. So I started as a musician, and as a kid, I wanted to be a rock star, and I hit a band. Mm-hmm. And the band was uh, like a progressive metal kind of a, kind of music that I envisioned. I was the main lyricist, and and I composed some stuff without knowing how to write it. So I would just give a hook, and people would be playing the music. But at some point, it was uh, 1994, and I was at the time living in Poland, although part of my childhood is in Germany. Uh, in 1994, it's when the grunge came to its prominence. And now I'm a huge fan, but back then, that was the source of my conflict with the guitar guy because he wanted to play dirty sounds. I wanted to play clean sounds like Black Sabbath, for example. Right. And so the band stopped. And at the age of 18, I felt like uh, I felt like I don't know what to do with myself in my life. I felt like I'm 18. I should know. And, uh, and I didn't. And, uh, and the label uh, asked me to you know, you, you're a lyricist, you're a good writer, why don't you write for us some, some reviews for the stuff that, that we release? So I did that occasionally, but uh, I couldn't really support myself by doing that. And um, within a year, I think I, somebody told me, well, you know, you always liked sports, because I did. Uh, you're into NBA basketball, into soccer, why don't you write about that? It's, uh, it's a good career. And, and that person was right, because within a year, I was already getting a lot of offers. I was already working for, for several media outlets and, and I just went with the flow and started coming to America to, to report on the NBA and it felt good. But around like when I was 20, 29, I felt, I felt like repetitive about it. I felt like I accomplished everything I wanted to. It might, it might sound a little arrogant, but that's not the case. It, it was more like it didn't feel like something that I want to do for the rest of my life. That that definitely makes sense. Now, okay, so progressive metal, and you talked a little bit about your 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 influences that that you like just very briefly. Who were who were the the to to you? Who were the metal gods? Who were those musicians that's like you know? If I was going to be anybody, this is who I wanted to be, and this is how I wanted my sound. Was it like Black Sabbath? Was it going to be something? Uh, when you say progressive, you sometimes get elements of like Rush in there. Who were who were the the influences that you thought this is this is where my sound comes from? It's funny that you mentioned Rush because the, that was the first review I wrote for, for the label when they asked me to write. They released Rush counterparts, I remember, and I took it home and I did the review. That was the first thing I've written. But so my father is a professor of history of arts. When in my early childhood, I was sure and I was tailored in the future to be that guy. I was sure I'm also going to be a professor of history. So I was reading a lot of books. I was winning all the Olympics. And then I think I was 12 when someone gave me Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. And that changed my life. I couldn't stop listening to it. 
I couldn't stop listening to it. And then I listened to Atom Heart Mother, then I Wish You Were Here. Uh, the Wall wasn't that much of my, you know, it wasn't my favorite one, but I've listened to that one too. Animals and uh, Amagama, and I couldn't stop. And then uh, Genesis, King Crimson, uh, Gentle Giant. So I was fully progressive. But while I hit like 15 years old, then I started listening to Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, those bands. And, and my initial response to, to that is that I want to combine both styles. I want to do something that I didn't know it's being made already, like bands like Dream Theater, for example. Right. And that was the type of music I wanted to do. I didn't know Dream Theater at the time, but I wanted to combine progressive rock with, with heavy metal sound. Now, for those of our younger listeners that uh, are maybe not completely familiar with some of these early influences, uh, you say the word metal today, and it conjures a, a drastically different uh, image and feeling, you know, just kind of eating yeah, the yeah. microphone. But in uh-huh. in the in the earlier days, it was it was um, it was a little more is a little more I don't want to say raw but it was it was still in its infancy so it was still developing into the 20 or 30 different sub categories of metal that eventually uh, eventually were what came out of it now the name of your band was that a, an homage to anything by chance because when I hear army of darkness the first thing I think of is evil dead <laughs> You know, no, I, what I was thinking at the time, because I was reading a lot, a lot of like dark novels and I was writing a, a dark lyrics. Uh, it was more the darkness, not not as a, you know, hell and and devil and that kind of stuff it was more more like a poetic homage to certain certain feelings to like being sensitive being like in the dark and listening to the music listening to the nature you know like more more that type of darkness than than like being on the dark side of uh, of life <laughs> darth vader uh, kind of a way no no, I, I just had to ask because especially my my co-host would normally be with me at this point, but uh, uh, his his favorite uh, one of his favorite series of horror films is is the Evil Dead series. And as soon as I saw the Army of Darkness, he said, "You have to ask him about this." Like I don't think it's connected, but I'm going to check just to be sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know it's somebody. Somebody asked me a few times about a specific film mm-hmm. that Army of Darkness is related to. I forgot what film I. Wizard of Oz. That is, is the it? name of the film. It's the third in the Evil Dead franchise. Yeah, here you go. So, so yeah, so not not that more more like towards dark novels, uh, like Joseph Conrad, Edgar Allan Poe. More 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 there than I would say a horror film. And definitely not nothing satanic, nothing. <laughs> that, that wasn't the part of heavy metal that attracted me more. The sound than than actually you know. And 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 listen, I. I met the guy who is the leader of Behemoth uh, once, oh. and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and he he was telling me that it's just for fun. He doesn't really believe in that. So, well, depending upon who you talk to, it may be considered to be more a sin if you said you were more of a hair metal and he's <laughs> kind of person and went that direction. Yeah. But hair, uh, metal, hair metal without hair. <laughs> Although at the time I did have long hair. At the time I did. All right. So all right, you've gotten into. You've gotten into um, writing about sports at, at this point, and 
become very much um, into it. You wrote a couple of novels, uh, or novels, a couple of books even, uh, about the subject. And it, it made me wonder, there are a lot of people that are very much in tune with or very much, uh, I don't want to say obsessed, but it, it plays a, sports play a major role in their life and how they see things. As a subject, what about sports, specifically the NBA, uh, what calls to you? What is what is that siren song? Why is it so interesting to write about that particular subject? I was late to the game, uh, in a way, because at the age of 15, I was the only guy in my class in high school uh, who didn't like basketball. And our, our teacher wanted us to play basketball all the time, and I couldn't, and I didn't like that. I wanted to play soccer. I was all about soccer, 100%. I even uh, uh, trained at the junior level soccer in my hometown. And I like to play a lot and I was actually pretty good. Mm. But when I was 16, I had surgery for, um, for my nose. Um, and uh, I was in the hospital for, for 10 days. Mm. And friends brought some magazines. It was called Magic Basketball. There, was, there were magazines about NBA basketball. And I'm like, I had some time. I'll try to figure out, like, what is it all about? Why people are so crazy about it. And at the same time, just to argue with my friends from my high school, who were all huge Michael Jordan fans and Chicago Bulls fans, I picked Houston Rockets as my team. To look for. <laughs> and they were winning championships. And I was, you know, like, I was uh, giving them a hard time about it. And it progressively, I got more into it, more into it, more into it. And I also learned English. So I thought when I started getting into sports and sports writing, that NBA basketball could be something that I want to explore. And within a year, I was like fully on board. And the more, like the deeper in the woods, the darker it got. Because, you know, I, I got fully on board with, with the NBA basketball. And in 1998, I was sent to New York for All-Star Weekend. That's where I met Kobe Bryant, and I saw him playing against Michael Jordan. And, and since that moment, it was, uh, it was like the number one thing for me for at least a decade. Well, and seeing it in person is drastically different than, than reading about it or watching it on television. That, that in-person experience, it, it has a whole different flavor. It has a whole different impact on you when you're actually able to be there. 100% plus I was shocked, you know, seeing those guys on TV back in Poland and reading magazines. And then I, I get my media pass and I go to the locker room and I can talk to them before and after the game. That was almost surreal. I, I, my hands were shaking. I remember one of the first guys I interviewed was Sean Kemp, who was at the time at the top of his game or close to it. It was his first season with the Cavs. And after the end of the conversation, which I think he enjoyed, he reached out a, a handshake and I was so timid that I, I just turned, turned my back and walked away. And yeah, so that was my first experience with the, with the NBA basketball. I took a photo with uh, Akim Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, both of them in one photo. And I still have that photo. It was in February, 2000, in February, 1998. They were both playing for the Rockets, and Charles Barkley was playing for the Rockets. I had a little conversation with Charles Barkley after the game, uh, which was which was also kind of unusual conversation. I remember 
he was surrounded by media. They played the New York Knicks. And there was one guy I, I knew from TV, a, a popular TV reporter, asking a question. I remember Charles Barkley turning his head, and it's, it's the most stupid question I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> While on air. He was never then, never afraid yeah, to speak his mind. I a question. I said, I'm from Polish, Polish Basketball Magazine. And he's like, oh, you're from Polish with Bas- Basketball Magazine. Finally, someone intelligent. All right, guys, bye. Let's talk. <laughs> It was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. yeah. So incredible. did you ever well, – okay, I'm, I'm going to rewind that back just a moment. Mm-hmm. My my areas of interest often don't intersect into sports as much as some of my friends, and I have used a particular comparison to occasionally irk several of them, uh, the fans of uh, – the friends of mine that are fans of soccer or the friends of mine that are fans of uh, basketball. I love to tell them that it's the exact same game. <laughs> They <laughs> just say, "Hey, well, they're just using different appendages. It's the same basic rules, and that that will always just drive them into a frenzy. It's completely different. The strategies are completely different." Uh, you know, you know what else I was shocked by? Because um, we didn't have in Europe something called uh, locker room access that we could get into the locker room before and prior prior to the game and after the game. The the, the first time I went to the locker room, it was Phoenix Suns playing in Meadowlands against New Jersey Nets. Nice. And there were a bunch of female reporters uh, coming to the locker room, and the guys were butt naked in the locker room. And nobody gave it. You know what I'm saying? Like it was <laughs> For me, it was shocking. I was probably the only one person shocked that, that, that you had like 15 um, female reporters and guys were walking around naked uh, in the locker room. That would be a little surreal. Um <laughs> So when you're when you're responsible for covering these these games for for those of us that have not been on this you know we're we're, we're the consumers we're the ones that watch the games we're the ones that read the reporting what is what is something that you didn't expect to be part of what you had to do in order to get these stories written uh, before you took uh, to the role you so like, okay I'm going to be a reporter What's maybe something that surprised you as part of that job? Well, first of all, how open um, they all were to to talk to you. Uh, of course, it came with the territory. Uh, some conversations you could do, you could have with European athletes were more substantial in terms of them opening up and saying what they really feel. Were uh, and it got actually significantly worse. Uh, you know, years later, especially now, I'm not doing this job anymore and I, I don't have the career but I still have a couple of friends who are sports writers you know like right now everything is filtered through PR filtered through they're uh, trained to say certain formulas and certain things and it's there's no more personal connection that's why this job also partially maybe became not not interesting for me because I you know like whatever I do in my life I'm passionate about. I don't want to do things that I'm not passionate about. And, and even if sometimes it's up and down, you don't, you know, maybe, maybe if you work for a corporation and you climbed up and you get a certain amount of money every month, uh, gives you some sense of security. My lifestyle and my path is maybe, maybe more chaotic in terms of earnings. You know, I, I did fine in life overall. I would say I did pretty well, but it's just, uh, I make decisions based on what I 
what I really want to do instead of what is uh, the most rational thing to do. Therefore, you know, in 1998, I, I could see the difference between like regular conversations with, uh, let's say, NBA players and, and some, some athletes in Europe or even some, some, some soccer players in the United States where there was not that much control over them, like what they're, you know, what they're allowed to say. Although I did have some interviews where people opened up completely and I, and I cherished that. That was the best part of it, to get to know a person. And I think my transition to become an actor later, uh, that experience of trying to figure out who that person is, trying to figure out what's the truth in the story, trying to figure out what the situation really is instead of what they're trying to tell you. But you have to have your own opinion, like what, what's the truth, what, what is really happening. I think that quality translated into, into acting work. Because that's what you do when you research uh, for your part. You know, you want to give the truthful um, portrait of, of the person or a situation. And it comes from, it comes from being truthful to, to your craft. Also, before, when I was a reporter, sometimes it got me into trouble because I, was, I wasn't compromising really, no. I was always trying to paint the right, you know, the right picture. Not the right picture for the people who wanted me to the right picture, but the right picture for the readers. Like I was always, my loyalty was towards readers. And my loyalty is, is towards audience in the first place. How much traveling did they have you do when you were covering all of these all of these games? Was this kind of I'm on the road every weekend? Oh, yeah. 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 And sometimes I had to, especially at the beginning, I had to pay myself for part of it, you know, because I would go, let's say they would send me to New York uh give me um, a plane ticket and like small budget but I, I, out of out of the pocket i would go to philadelphia to see the sixers i would go to washington you know to see the wizards against the bulls i would go an extra mile to see more to experience more to learn more to have more opportunities to do something and i would always have a like a network of collaborations where i could do materials and send them to four or five different outlets which would compensate me on on me spending you know, for, for, for those trips. But I always, I always try to see as much as possible. So you never had any issues uh, with like, I know a lot of uh, companies trying to non-compete sort of things in, in this industry. Was it, was it not quite so tight? You could. No, no, it, it was, it was, but for, let's say I was sent by a Polish newspaper. I could still do interviews. I sell them to, let's say Japan or Germany or South Africa if I got lucky, I could still do that. I could still uh, give a, like a short uh, a, a correspondence to a, to a TV on the phone or to a radio or to like a basketball magazine. Later, I could write like, 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 a, like a column, you know. So I wasn't making a lot, but it was a decent living. And substantially, it became better. At some point, I had my own talk show. I was both broadcaster and writer. Uh, I was, you know, writing to, let's say, Polish Playboy uh, month after month. Um, and yeah, and, and, and they all added up. I had a financial, I was doing very, very well. All right. So one more question about the, the, the sports broadcasting sort of a thing. Because sports are as big as they are, they touch so many elements and aspects of everything else. There's this cross cultural thing that goes along with it that means that often if you're going to be covering these teams that you're going to run into other people surprisingly too 
who's maybe one of the more interesting people that you might have run into on accident covering one of these games? Hmm. That's that's one of those questions that you would like to have some time with to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely meeting David David Beckham for the first time in a in a men's bathroom at the Lakers game that was that was surreal. <laughs> I'm looking to my left and it's David Beckham and and uh, at the time one of the most popular athletes in the world and we were both doing. Uh, the men thing in, right. in the half of a basketball game. So at this one moment, we were, you know, at the same level, two human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Keep looking so forward. Was, don't uh, say anything. Keep looking forward. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm not going to tell you what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, meeting Kobe Bryant for the first time and then becoming like distant friends with him and, and, and getting the life advice from him in 2007 that pretty much uh, decided that I moved to Los Angeles and started pursuing acting. That was a game changer for me. Uh, I've been to uh, some wild uh, parties as, uh, in my early 20s with soccer players. Uh, remember one time I was dating a Russian girl. She was like a Russian model in my, in my early 20s. And I took her to a New Year's Eve party in the Polish, uh, in the north of Poland, which was with Polish soccer players. And they gave us a local alcohol that was 70% strong. Uh, but it was sweet, so you couldn't taste that. And I remember uh, she was drinking the same amount of alcohol as everybody else. And those were like Polish national team soccer players, big guys. We all were, we're, were all falling down falling down the under the table and she was the only one sober at the end. That's impressive. Yeah, that is impressive. Okay. So one of the other things that I saw that I thought was really interesting is that you have some history uh, dealing with producing comedy as well as that. So I did. how did you get into into that aspect of work? Well, that's a very good that's a very good question because it, it I'm still sometimes thinking about it. You know, how did that happen? It's such a weird. It's such, it was such a weird four years of me me doing that, and uh, I could imagine. So when I decided that I want to try acting, you know, you, you have this incredible confidence. Like every actor who comes to Los Angeles thinks it's going to happen within a year, and and it's easy, and you don't think it's easy, but you don't, you don't think, you know, how difficult it is in the moment and how unpredictable it is and, and that it can change either way at any given moment. So knowing that the, the sports writing career, the sports, you know, the sports broadcasting career, I was making very fast moves and very fast steps forward. Every time I had an idea to do something, it was pretty much a flawless ride to the top without any setbacks. I felt it's going to be the same way with acting. And, and it wasn't after two years, uh, which for me was a lot, two years. And I know now that it's nothing, uh, when you, especially when you start in your early 30s and you have to get rid of some bad habits you have in front of the camera. So I started having my doubts. And I, and I went to Stella Adler Academy for one year. Then I went to Beverly Hills Playhouse, <clears throat> sorry, for one year. And... Um, and then I went to study with Judith Weston, who had this, this uh, actor's director's lab 
And she told me, why don't you try stand-up comedy? You're, you have a very good natural intensity. Sorry. Why don't you try that? It's going to open up some new some new uh, routes for you in terms of like your development as an actor. So I went to do, um, I responded to like a Craigslist uh, ad, uh, something emerging comics, uh, comedy night emerging comics. And I was, and I met with the guy and the first time I did stand up, he put me on the main stage of the comedy store, which was at the time struggling. They didn't have any people, you know, they had like 20, 30 people at shows. So he was running so-called bringer show that you invite all your friends and you get stage time and the show is horrible and they tell you you're great, but you're not. And the show sucks <laughs> and your friends have to suffer through it. And that's what I did. And my first, the first time I went on stage, I was horrible. Then the second time I went on stage, I was, I was better because I took a week. I, I got some coaching and I, and I actually had a pretty, pretty decent set my second time ever in life, which actually you can find on YouTube. That's my second time I was on stage ever in my life. Nice. But that's the third or fourth time I was, I'm like, I, I, I can't invite all my friends all the time. And I, I was good in promoting. I was bringing friends from my acting class. They were coming to see me, but the show wasn't good. And, and I decided I'm, I can do it on my own. You know, I have people who come see me. I can do much better show. I can give them much better show with better talent and it's going to be fun and I'm going to learn and progress and develop my acting chops a little bit more. And, uh, and that's what happened. I went to, I teamed up with like a bunch of club promoters. So they were helping me out, sending like mass, mass emails to a lot of different people. And I, I heard my first show I did at the, roof of a taco shop in los angeles and i packed it then i went to a floppers comedy club in burbank and i packed it on, on like tuesday night and the show was good and i had wayne's brothers started coming in and then whitney comics started coming in and then they, i received an email from comedy store because i played basketball i played pickup basketball with one of the managers and i think he said a word to the general manager and a comedy store at the time was struggling so they invited me to comedy store and I started running shows there and back in 2014 2015 those were some of the biggest shows and in 2016 I started I got my agent I got my manager I started getting auditions I started booking jobs I booked I think re recurring on this of our lives I booked a role on startup in Puerto Rico with with Martin Freeman I booked Scorpion and I booked uh, making history on Fox and when that happened, I decided, you know what? Now it's time for me. Now I got what I wanted out of it. And it's, it's a lot. Now it's time to focus on one thing, probably, which will be acting. It was a tough decision because people were thinking I'm crazy. Like, here's an interesting part. When you have your own show in a comedy store and you have people like Joe Rogan, Bill Burr, uh, Whitney Cummings, anybody, uh, The Price is Right guy, Drew Carey, um, and they come in to do your show, you are in this weird position of power where people are literally kissing your ass because they want to be on the show and you don't ask for it. You know, I never asked for that position of power. I, it was never my intention. My intention was to grow and to learn and to move on with a bunch of other people along the way and to make those creative relationships. But at some point, 
it becomes dangerous to you, that you might fall into a trap that it could be your career instead of what you envision to do. And I was looking at some top producers in the game that, all, you know, there was a mutual respect between us. And I had some conversations with them and they all believe, or it's just temporary. Yeah, I'm just doing for now, I'm gonna focus on acting, I'm gonna focus on doing my own comedy. But then I realized they're doing it for 20 years and everybody <laughs> sees them that way. So even if it was a huge honor for me to, have, to be at the comedy store every Friday night to have my own show. And, and also there was another element that I, I saw a lot of people struggling it was stressful because people would call me sometimes in the middle of the night, sending me tons of messages, trying to pull my pull my leg a little bit, which I was very good, I think, in reading and 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 not really getting emotional about it. But it you become tired of it, of that energy, of that of the you know needy energy, which I understand because listen, you know, like I also want to work, I understand that. <laughs> but then, but but then, you know, here's one thing that happened that kind of speeded up the decision for me. And that's a, and that's a tough thing, and that's why like one of my last last acts at the comedy store, was, I was trying to establish a foundation for for comics with depression to help them with free therapy. Bunch of the people I knew I did shows with uh, killed themselves. You know that was for me, that was for me like a alarm signal. That really got into my head. I'm not gonna lie. Like I was pretty good with you know managing stress, managing pe managing people expectations. I had a clear vision of what I want to do. But when you have your friends die to, to take their own life, that that is depressing. And I felt like I had to step step away from it for for at least a bit. And that's how the real acting career started in 2018. Comedy can definitely be a difficult path choice. <laughs> It, it takes. Yeah, a very... and I will tell you what. I almost almost came back in 2019. You know, I did I did a show at Laugh Factory one one show, which was like International Comedy Night. It was called, and I was thinking about you know I'll be hosting that show with comedians that are from different back you know backgrounds, you know, with different ethnicity like Canadians, British, Afghani, you know, and I, I will have this like uh, different accents, different styles, different cultures, you know, like let's have a show like that once a month, and it will be fun, you know, to supplement with acting. Uh, but then I booked my first job, which was first major job that was The Hunt. I'm in New Orleans. I remember till this day, it was February 2019. I'm in New Orleans shooting The Hunt. I come uh, to my trailer after a 12-hour day uh, where director, wonderful director Craig Zobel that later directed the uh, mayor of Easttown uh, with uh, Ethan Sapley uh, and uh, wonderful cast. I come to my trailer, Betty Gilpin, and with Betty Gilpin, I come to my trailer and I see my phone, you know, lit up that, you know, Brody Stevens took his own life a, a night before. And that hit me so hard because I knew Brody. I, I, he was one of my friends. He was one of my favorite comedians. I, he was struggling for a while and I felt like he needs more help. And I, I felt like he didn't get enough help from the community that he deserved and, and that he needed. And after he died, everybody was like, oh, Brody this, Brody that, Brody was my friend. Uh, you know, like, uh, such a tragedy, such a tragedy. But I'm like, well, what did you do when he needed you? He was clearly struggling. And, and that broke my heart almost, you know? So at that moment, I decided, you know what, from now, I, I can't get back into it. I will just focus on acting and let's see what happens. On one of the more 
positive side, since you had the yes. opportunity to see so many incredibly talented yeah. comics, and there's so much of a crossover between being a stand-up comedian and being an actor. 100%. What are what are maybe one or two of the lessons that you learned from some of the people that you worked with while doing that? Well, first of all, I went back to the comedy store a month ago, and uh, it was incredible. I had I was able to connect with those people on a on a different level. Uh, you know, we're, we're friends with a bunch of them, but you know, when when you produce a show, you know, some of, some of those people see you as a producer more as a talent. Where now, of course, everybody sees me as a talent because. I have a body of work to prove it, and uh, it's been and it's been a while since I left. And it was very nice how they welcomed me, welcomed me back. And it's always going to be my second home in Los Angeles. Uh, it's always going to be a special place for me. Um, I'm still friends with a bunch of them uh, and very very close and and in touch and and doing things. You know, Ian Edwards, uh, who, who is a great headliner. He's one of my best friends, and we watch soccer together sometimes. I joined his podcast to talk about soccer. I used to do it more now. I would say I don't have time to watch that many games. So so my knowledge is not what it used to be when I was a professional. So that's why I don't do it that as often anymore. But he's one of my best friends. We played actually soccer soccer together uh, last week with a bunch of young kids. We're two old, two old guys playing soccer with the young kids. <laughs> running around you in circles yeah we're just like you know we're the, it was on the verge you know the, the age difference was on a verge of creepiness you know because <laughs> <laughs> you want to get too close to not to be you know that's just a joke we swear everything's uh, fine exactly right exactly so uh definitely dean del rey who used to be a musician now he's a very good stand-up uh, doing shows with mark maron and, and bill burr he was an inspiration to me because he started doing stand-up when he was 44. so when i decided to switch into acting at the age of 40 completely 100 i thought about it you know like this guy changed his life at the age of 44 and decided this is the love of his life this is what he wants to do for the rest of his life and he went hard at it he was he would have a notebook with, uh, you know, in his pocket and he would put number of shows every day he did. And then he would come up with a number at the end of the year and he would post that number. It's like this year I did 1100 shows or this year I did 900 shows. And so he was inspiration to me, you know, his hard work and his commitment, like how, how committed he was every day. I, I remember one time when I was still at the store, I asked him, uh, uh, Dean, you know, uh, where is Miss Delray? Like, is there going to be, is there is Miss Del Rey? And he said, comedy is Miss Del Rey. And that level of commitment, inspirational. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty important. Maybe almost as important as visiting our website, everybodylovespudding.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mentioned there was going to be an awkward thing right in the middle. No, but uh, our you, listeners. You want to see the awkward thing? Yeah, this is this is this is the awkward yeah, thing. Awkward, the awkward thing. I used, <laughs> I used to love pudding myself, but I was diagnosed lactose intolerant at the beginning of the year, so uh, I used to love pudding. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we have to change as we get a little bit older, but what never changes is uh, an interest in the wonderfully quirky and. Uh, fun pop culture things that you can find on our website. You can, of course, see our upcoming interviews with wonderful people like Mr. Martin Harris. You can see the uh, see the different movie reviews that we've done over the course of the last four and a half seasons. You can get deep into 
the pop culture side of comic books with the ultimate comic movie database. Every film ever based on a comic strip or comic book, all cross-referenced for your easily digestible pleasure. And of course, you can get into the pop culture death counts. Find out how many people really did die in the most recent Thor Love and Thunder film. We've got that up there. But uh, more importantly, even than that, is you have to know how to find these wonderful people and follow them so that you can find out when their next new projects are coming out. If somebody were wanting to know exactly how to find you, Mr. Harris, what are the best ways to follow you? So the best way is on Instagram. It's Martin underscore Harris LA. Martin underscore Harris LA. I post about all my projects. Sometimes I post uh, photos of animals and I post also my list of favorite music albums of all time. Now I'm at 5,020. Woo! That's, yeah. that's a lot of albums. That's a lot of albums. We tend to limit our lists to 10 just because our memory can't go back past that. Yeah, that's why I posted. So, so that's <laughs> my memory anytime I go back. <laughs> oh, all right. So, you've now completely committed to acting. This is going to yeah. be this is going to be the thing that you're going to do now. Mm-hmm. I noticed one of your early um, IMDb credits, uh, just as a small uncredited role, as you were on the set of Angels and Demons as as a reporter. That uh, that had to be a lot of fun. How close did you get to see some of the major uh, action bits on that film? Oh, extremely close. I was there for two months. I was playing a reporter. I was with, in the mix with other reporters, except for the fact that I wasn't speaking. <laughs> but <laughs> you can see me in one of the opening scenes uh, talking to the microphone, uh, something, I guess. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the time, I, I thought that's it, that I made it. I'm, I'm all angels and demons. I'm, I didn't know the distinction between being an extra and being an actor at this point of my career. Yeah. That's always kind <laughs> of a, a, a wonderful thing that I absolutely love to see is just the sheer number of people that appear in films and television who are actually reporters in their day-to-day jobs and then just kind of are also happen to be reporters in in the parts that they do so it's always kind of an entertaining thing yeah, and, and so i had a hope that they're going to upgrade me because I, I was at the time i was still one 100 reporter it was my second month in los angeles i was going to lakers games i was going to clippers games i was going to la galaxy games so i was acting as a reporter and i remember one pa came to me and pointed a finger at me i think you'll be a star <laughs> which Listen, which everybody hears at least 10 times, you know, every single actor that moves to Los Angeles for whatever reasons, you know, if you're a pretty girl, you hear it for all the wrong reasons, but uh, most of the time. Uh, But, you know, I ended up playing a reporter eventually on on Staircase and chasing Colin Firth out of the out of the building and and running after him and throwing a bunch of lines at him and Sophie Turner. So that was fun because that felt that was a real role. It was a fun role. And, and I'm glad I did it because it almost connects me with, uh, with my past. Yeah. Um, one of the other early, early credits that I saw that I had to ask about just because uh, I'm a fan of, well, b- straight, straight up B movies or you may, maybe the movie started as you know a, a big end film, but after a certain number of sequels might have not, <laughs> not been quite that, that level anymore. And I saw that you were in Puppet Master 10. <laughs> <laughs> that has that has got to be just 
all I could think of was like, that's kind of awesome because that's that's like the perfect style of B movie in terms of you you can't you just go in expecting this is going to be completely outrageous. Check out from reality. This is going to be a lot of fun. How did you get um, how did you get uh, the voice role for that? I think it was on one of the services for actors. They were looking for a German speaker. I think I, I voiced the Nazi character on it. Right. And it was one of the many Nazi roles I played uh, at, at the beginning of my career until until now, because in Amsterdam I play a Nazi as well. I think I played Nazi 16 times, in, including like a bunch of videos and, and just you know low-budget stuff at the beginning up until uh, like more, more recent and major projects. Is it is it ever kind of one of those things where, you know, you, you talk to different actors react different ways to, it's not really typecasting so much, but you have a certain like skill set or a certain vocal quality. Your accent definitely plays into it. Obviously, mm-hmm. is this like this is the bountiful harvest? I love this. I always have this area that I can play a role. And I know I can do it and I can do it well. Or is this like, well, this is nice. But it really would be nice. It's like, give me a rom com. I want to be, uh, <laughs> I want to be the accidental first boyfriend. Give me that part for for something different. It, yeah, it's changing. I can see it's changing because uh, I would say at the very beginning, most of my roles were angry, aggressive, because it goes back to the intensity that Judith Weston mentioned. I think that's my natural thing. I don't have to. I don't have to raise it. I think I can naturally just go to that place and, and play the way it is. But I feel like my growth as an actor, especially since I went full time in 2018, uh, was to be more versatile and play more different roles. And and in the last two years, I had a bunch of different roles that I and I start being called and, and doing well um, on, on those type of characters where it's not just an angry guy, but, you know, a priest or uh, an accountant, you know, I, I, I can pull up those right now and still not with a standard American accent, maybe for, for big script, for long script, but <clears throat> at least for, um, uh, for, for international characters. Well, I'm talking about after 2018, I, I feel one of the great examples of that is the, the voice work you did for Call of Duty. I mean, oh, that's an angry voice. Yeah, well, that's an angry. Voice. It is, but it's 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 angry with nuance. It it has levels. It has a, and just yeah. that was that had to have. I don't know if that's maybe the thing you're best known for at this point, but there I would ha- say it happened to Stranger Things. That was the thing. Yes, that there has to be just a a, a huge number of people that that uh, the characters that we see in video games have a lasting impact on us because we spend 40, 50, 60, 70 hours uh, on games, depending upon which uh, one that you're playing. So it is. does it kind of feel, I don't know about the word weird, but how does it feel to know that your role in that game will kind of last forever in its own separate space of, of pop culture? So... I, I wasn't aware of how much of a fan base it is and it will be, but when people figured out it's me voicing Kruger, which was iconic character in Call of Duty, I started getting messages through my to my Instagram account from from all kinds of people. Some of them had avatars uh, with uh, with Kruger on, and people till this day are asking me, 
uh, like this day, I mean today, asking me if I'm going to be in Modern Warfare 2. And I can tell only that I, I'm not, I'm not uh, able to reveal that. <laughs> well, I know that the fan base for sure wants to see it because that, uh, like I said, that it, it was a really, a really fun character to have in the game. And you voiced that character so well. I, I, oh, thank you. It seems like a, a shoe in to me. Of your and, yeah, they keep coming back from Activision, which is which is fun, and uh, you know over the years, and um, and sometimes you have because you know when when people don't know your face but they know your voice and they know what the character is, sometimes it leads to to funny situations. I went to a party uh, where my friend was was the host, and he's a social, uh, he's uh, excuse me, um, a visual effects guy, and he works for this company. We had a he has a boss from South Africa uh, who came to the party pretty big guy in the in the visual effects world and he mentioned you know in the middle of the party he mentioned my that i'm working on different computer games and the guy asked you know which ones and he said call of duty and he, i could see his interest raising like which character <laughs> what, what did you do on call of duty and when he mentioned kruger the guy lost his mind he started kissing me in the forehead and taking selfies with me and he's that's my favorite guy this is my hero you're my hero and uh, yeah that was that was a bizarre experience but a fun experience nevertheless Just and up until stranger things that was i would say the only time i had a uh, i had fans you know, so to speak. And and now I have also Stranger Things fans. So there are two groups of fans. Well, you've got, so you had a great, you had a great part in that show. That was a really yeah. fun section of that particular season. I mean, yeah. it's, it's always difficult when you divide the story into, into groups mm -hmm. of separate people. But uh, that, that just gives, I, I feel that the creators of the story a chance to branch out with a bunch of other actors and be able to kind of bring in some, some other, Fun stuff. What was it like uh, being uh, being on set with something that already had such a huge following? Surreal. I was super paranoid that I'm going to lose it at the very last moment because of COVID. So I remember when I reached the hotel in Atlanta, uh, I locked myself in there for, you know, the quarantine was two weeks and, and I was only stepping out by myself, walking around with my uh, headphones and listening to music or reading a book trying to avoid people at every possible cost. When there was someone in the elevator, I would wait. Uh, I was cooking in my hotel room one time. Uh, too much smoke caused uh, the smoke alarm to go off and people came to my to my room and I'm like, stay away, don't come close. <laughs> I didn't want to take any risks, but the first day I got on set and finally you know, signed my deal and everything, uh, it was surreal because I was such a big fan of the show. Like. I'll tell you a funny story. So on the New Year's Eve, a uh, year prior to that, 2020, I I had my wishes, my New Year New Year's resolutions, and I said I would love to be on Stranger Things and Better Call Saul and a big movie. And within within five months, I'm on uh, Stranger Things, Better Call Saul, Amsterdam, and Greyman. So it works, guys. It works. Yeah, I, I like it. You you look around, see a small cricket in a top hat somewhere, uh, <laughs> granting wishes of some kind. That you are in like a lot of stuff that's all coming out all at the same time, touching so many so many big projects. Now, I, I know a lot of a lot of people that watch the films don't always 
understands the the time frames that are involved in creating those projects. So, I mean, we see that, okay, you're in Amsterdam, you're in the Gray Man, you're in Stranger Things, Better Call Saul. It's all happening all at the same time. But in your timeline, how did those kind of interweave? Were they were they like back to back to back simultaneous or were they kind of spread out? Back to back to back. That was the best three months of my career I ever had. And hopefully I can repeat it soon. Uh, started with Amsterdam in most random circumstances. I got that role, uh, but I got it and I stay on set for two weeks. Uh, a lot of stuff. There were a lot of uh, opportunities on that set to when you did your job well, to, to be rewarded for that because it was in the middle of pandemic. And I think there were a lot of precautions. There were a lot of uh, things they wouldn't probably do in nowadays, you know, with, with where we are right now, or where we, where we were three, four years ago. Uh, another friend of mine, he was booked for one day. He stayed 18 days and has a substantial part in the film. So he was doing a lot of all improv, um, changing things, adding things. And that benefited me and it benefited him and a bunch of other people. Not necessarily some other people, but, you know, I, I feel good. Like my comedy experience, my comedy training came to fruition because I'm able to to do things on the fly, to change things on the fly. I have that that skill that, you know, somebody throws me a suggestion and I'm able to adjust right away where some people are very method and without preparation and coming in a certain with a certain mindset, they are not able to make that switch. I, for me, it's it's natural. I can make that switch anytime, you know. And that comes from four years doing comedy, and that's probably the one of the best benefits of of, of doing that. So yeah, it was Amsterdam, it was Stranger Things after that. Then they uh, added one more week of Stranger Things for me, and there was a danger I'm gonna miss the Gray Man. Literally, I was released from this my last day on set on Stranger Things, 7.30 p.m. in Atlanta. I caught my last flight to Los Angeles at 9 or 10, uh, barely. And then I had to be on a fitting next morning in Long Beach. So that was a little bit stressful, but it all worked out and I was able to do it. And then after that, after the Great Man, I did the Lakers show. And after the Lakers show, I did the Better Call Saul. Wow. That yeah. is that is nuts. That's a lot. That's a lot in yeah. a short period of time. It's only three months. Three months. And not just a lot, but that's a lot of different kind of genre stuff too to kind of switch between. Completely different. Yeah. So maybe you can settle uh, settle a uh, a dispute. Now, I know it's clickbaity, uh, but all of the different uh, little news stories that come up for Amsterdam uh, saying that one particular actor might have been singing a lot louder than say some other actors <laughs> were on set. Were you, were you in a position where you got to uh, be part of that aspect of it? No, I wasn't there when they were filming with, with, with Taylor actually. And, and that's a bummer because yeah, I mean a lot of, a lot of my friends asked me if I saw Taylor and I did not, I did see Christian. I work with Christian and what an amazing experience he was in character for the whole day he was able to even during the lunch break to walk and talk as a character like even regular stuff he would talk to you like i do right now but he would just use the mannerism of the of the character and i think uh, he mentioned it in one of the q a's uh, i don't remember if it was in person when i was in the light in la premiere or it, i saw it on, on on one of the clips but he said that he was looking for inspiration for for his character Bert, and he one day he saw this uh, random guy in downtown Los Angeles, 
uh, walking certain way and, and making certain facial expressions. And he just borrowed from him the movement and facial expression for, for Bert. And he never met the guy. He never saw the guy again. But he used that guy as a, as a blueprint for, for the movement of his one of, the, one of the iconic performances. Because I think it's one of his best performances. I think he's absolutely amazing in this room. That's that's saying a lot. He's 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 yeah. definitely. Well, who would you if you had your your choice of choice? You've now had a chance to work with some just fantastic talent. Is there a writer or a director or an actor that you just like? You know, I would just absolutely love to have a chance to work with this person. Who would that be? Steven Spielberg, one hundred percent. Good choice. Good. Yeah, Steven Spielberg, he's a legend. He, I, I grew up watching his movies. I mean, I admire the guy. He created so many different genres and subgenres, and he was able to, to create those big blockbusters, uh, not repeat something that was created before, which a lot of people do those days, but to create original, original uh, to, transform, to transform the film industry the way he did. And, of course, there are some films and some directors who have more, I would say, art-driven projects that individually I like maybe more, but as a full career span, I think not, for me, Spielberg is the guy. He's just one of the, he, he's one, the one guy that I would love to be on set with, yes, 100%. Yeah, that makes sense to me. One of the other things that I saw that you did was some ADR work on some yeah. Marvel projects, and of course... Oh, a lot of different projects. It's Most of them are not even listed yet. Right, so... That got me to thinking also, considering a lot of what we do is talk about the intersection of comic books and film and television. So one of the common questions that I also tend to ask is, again, if you had your choice, I don't know if you're a comic book fan or if you're just on, you've seen it on the periphery, but if you had a chance to play any comic book character that you could ever play, who would you like to play? So I'll give you a complex answer. I grew up watching James Bond films and uh, I'm a huge fan. Actually, I'm rewatching all the films right now and I reread the whole uh, catalog of Ian Fleming books during the pandemic. Nice. So I know it's not a comic book, but for me, James Bond, 100%. I would, and I would love to be a villain. Your question, what, you know, I would love to work with Steven Spielberg. The second part of my answer would be, I would love to be the villain of a James Bond movie. Uh, with comic books, I actually grew up uh, reading Polish comic books. There were certain characters in Polish comic books that I liked. Uh, so I didn't grow up uh, with Marvel stuff and those characters. Um, I don't know. It's a tough question. I don't, I don't think there is one particular comic book character from, from, that, uh, from, from, from this country, our country, that I fully relate to. What about uh, from Poland? Yeah, they they had some some funny characters. The one was an ape that talked. Uh, I don't know if I can pull that one off. Uh, maybe with makeup. <laughs> <laughs> They're CGI. That two, two medieval knights. When one of one was one was small and smart. The other one was was uh, large and and a little silly. I could probably pull off one of those. Yeah, I like it. I like it because that's that's a lot. Of, there's a lot of crossover that most people don't realize between comics from the all you, over you the world. Comic, you know what comic book I read as a kid? There was one American comic book I read, Lucky Luke. Remember Lucky Luke? I do. Okay, that's the guy. That's my joke. 
<laughs> that may throw some people for a, for a loop too because they that's that's one of those that one of those characters that most people are not really familiar with anymore and that, those are the best though because you have so much so much opportunity to kind of make the the performance yours whenever they why people forgot about lucky Luke? why there is no lucky Luke movies right yeah. there should be this one lucky Luke series somewhere on one of the platforms i don't know you you would think so i mean but some of my favorite strips are just now some of them getting um converted like uh i was a big fan of uh bloom county uh which was a, a comic strip that ran in um, most newspapers for a very long time and eventually converted to Opus and other things, but it's finally getting a, a treatment as an animated series. So you just, sometimes you just got to wait for the good stuff to show up. And Or did Lucky Luke say or, or did something inappropriate? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think oh, okay, so. Good, good, good. I hope he didn't do anything bad. So he's not canceled. No, no. Uh, that That's a, that's a, that's a, a different episode conversation for sure. <laughs> some some of the things that the comics have done that maybe maybe would not translate so well. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, what can you tell me about to to finish things up? Uh, you're obviously people need to watch Stranger Things. The first of all, if you haven't seen it, what rock have you been living under? But and of course, the Gray Man in Amsterdam, just amazing. Both of them, uh, great pieces. But do you have anything else that you can tell us about that is maybe coming out soon that you're going to be part of? Uh, yeah, I can tell um, cryptically. Um, Marvelous Miss Maisel, new, new season, will be last season. I'm going to be in this one, and it's actually a very good role uh, that I'm very proud of. Could be one of my biggest ones so far. Uh, and I enjoyed everything about that process, working with, with that cast. Well, what an amazing group of uh, actors. Like, That's another great show. Yeah. Yeah, and I did it in New York, and I fell in love with New York again. I haven't been to New York for 12 years, and now I went uh, to do Miss Maisel, and a couple of months later, I went to the premiere of Amsterdam, and both times I had amazing time. Uh, and there's not, not even a debate between L.A. pizza and New York pizza. It's not even close. It's different food. Let's put that <laughs> out of the way. It's different food. Well, and it is different, but that didn't tell, that didn't tell us which you prefer. Oh, <laughs> New York all day, every day. But at the same time, for my personal health, LA, because I just don't eat it. So right. in New York, I eat pizza every day. And well, that's dangerous, yeah. I, I, I like that answer. All pizza is good pizza. We often ask that question, too. You just beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, but New York pizza, it's something else about it. Like, not even in Italy, it's that good. New York pizza is the best pizza in the world. It is pretty awesome. Well, I cannot tell you how much I have appreciated you coming on the show and sharing you, some sir. of your time and stories. Um, do you think that maybe in the future, if you're going to be in something else, you'll come back and visit the Pudding Guys again? I would love to, and I, I might try some pudding to see if it doesn't kill me first. <laughs> tapioca. Start with tapioca. It's mild. <laughs> It'll oh, be fine. There you go. There you go. But uh, thank you again, and we hope that everybody gets to see how awesome you are in in these in these movies. It's it's, it's great. 